you know, this whole notion uh, that we talk about so often in terms of, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion and so on, that is something that is actually operating in Hollywood as much as anywhere. And, and I've seen so many movies lately where you really get a sense of people of diverse backgrounds all in the film. And initially it might sometimes seem, when I say force, I just simply mean like somebody sitting at a table on a programmatic saying, okay, we have one of this, we need one of that, that kind of thing, which is almost Machiavellian at times. But what I find encouraging is I'm, I'm seeing movies recently where it seems more organic. And that's the ideal, isn't it? It's just like, well, who's good for this role? Mm -hmm. And it might be somebody of, you know, one gender or another or, or one ethnic background or another, whatever. But when you watch the film, you just feel like, yeah, this is like a good United Nations of casting. And it just came together that way. And that's what I'd like to see, where it doesn't have to be programmatic. It's just, well, we have a new, we have this character who's good for the role. Hello, and welcome to At the Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the new Mission Impossible movie and about Joyride, starting with Mission Impossible. So, Mike, this is one of those movies that was delayed, you know, because of COVID. It was supposed to come out not this summer where it's competing with all the wonderful movies that are out this summer. Where do you want to start with Mission Impossible? Is it a Mission Impossible? Well, my feeling is it is actually possible to have too much of a good thing. And I think that's the case here. Uh, you didn't even give the full title because the full title is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Dead Reckoning. Part 1. Part one. <laughs> and Part 1 has a running time of 163 minutes. So, I mean, I'm laughing as I say it because you and I have talked about this like, like, you know, bloated films where it's just, okay, you know, one big set piece after another. And this is a film where individual segments, the set pieces often are spectacular, often work really well. But in the aggregate, for my money, it's just like too much of, of a good thing. And actually, it, it prompts another immediate remark by way of movies that are too much of a good thing. Um, even though I did like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, you know, again, it's a film that does tend to run long and, and tends to repeat itself in various ways. But the, the reason in particular, I mention it right now is, is just a quirk, I assume coincidental, but uh, the highlight, really, of the current Mission Impossible movie is at the end where there's this really terrific sequence of a train about to go off a bridge. And it's just really, you know, really well crafted as filmmaking. The coincidence, though, is that, that it was shot. At, it's supposed to be the Orient Express, right, which from from my reckoning, you know, sort of ran through Europe and <laughs> over to the Middle East, whatever. But where they actually shot it was in North Yorkshire in, in England along a stretch of tracks. So the, the curious coincidence is that in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Death, Destiny, some of that same uh, train type footage was shot on the very same track. And don't ask me to explain that. Maybe they got a great tax break or something. I don't know. But in the summer, I mean, how often can you say that? We talk about the big set pieces in two of the major blockbuster movies, and they actually were shot on the same section of railroad track. So I'm sure like the film crews in, in uh, Yorkshire, North Yorkshire must be thrilled. I mean, they really were kept employed fully. But Marie, doubling back on your initial question and observation, this was a film that was delayed with the pandemic. I, I think, frankly, just watching as a film, there, there's no way one would uh, be prompted to think that or, or, or to fuss over it. it. It just plays like a Mission Impossible film. But behind the scenes, you're right. It was a film that was shot quite a bit ago, so much so that, you know, the star of it, you know, Tom Cruise was in his late 50s when he began the film. And he's 60, he turned 61 as the film came out. 
So uh, and I'll very quickly add and then hand it over to you that um, we should all look so good at 61. I mean, he's in terrific shape. He justly prides himself on this. He does a lot of his own stunt work, most so particularly like on a motorcycle or jumping around. He's doing a lot of that. Although there's some CGI, not as much computer generated effects as you get in most movies. So, and it makes a difference. You can feel the thrill factor when you feel like it's really being done or almost really being done. Uh, that said, the final addendum to my comments, you know, as an actor, I've always thought Tom Cruise had a limited range, but that he was excellent within that range. And this is a film that, again, demonstrates that. Put him on a motorcycle and have him going after the bad guys. And man, you know, he's the best actor for that role. Now, I'm going to ask you if you feel like this feels like the other Mission Impossible movies, because I feel like it's all of a piece. People go and you have to ask yourself whenever they make any sort of movie, who's it for? You know, and, and did it achieve what it set out to do? And I think the Mission Impossible franchise is all about watching Tom Cruise do incredible things because you know that, like you said, he likes to do his own stunts. So it's about sets and stunts. And I would say in terms of sets and stunts, it hits the mark. It does that really well. But it's it doesn't really, I couldn't tell you what was different about this Mission Impossible movie as opposed to a different one other than remembering a different stunt. Well, the sequels are essentially remakes. <laughs> it, it's continuous that way. And in all the films, there'll be some sort of gizmo or gadget. And of course, Indy Jones operates on the same principle. So here it's something called The Entity, which is certainly mm -hmm. an ominous name. And it's some sort of super hacker, okay? And, and the usual world domination for the bad guys who want to make use of it. But what is, to me, funny, and I don't know if it was intentionally meant to be funny, is this is a highly sophisticated device, to say the least. And yet to, to trigger it, to make it operate, there's what to me seems like sort of a, a new take on an old-fashioned device of a key. And this mm -hmm. is a key with two halves, and you need to get each half and then combine them and then, you know, turn it on and bingo. Don't ask me to explain the physics of this, but, but that somehow this key will do it. And I thought that was sort of funny. It was just sort of like, you know, like of all the high tech things you could do, you still need to get that key, an actual physical key to make it work. But Marie, you know, to underscore your essential point here, it really is all about the stunts. It's all about Tom Cruise triumphing through all of that. And uh, for me, there's a kind of Pavlovian response factor here, namely that as soon as that great Lalo Schifrin score kicks in, how many hundreds of times we've heard it by now, variations on whether from the TV show or now with the movies, it still works, doesn't it? It, it kicks in. It, it has that kind of immortal value to it that is the moment you hear it, it's an adrenaline pump. And, and all you have to do is trigger that music and everything else is triggered. So if you go with that as an expectation, fine. I mean, it truly is a summer movie in that respect. What's curious, uh, in addition, in terms of, you know, how predictable it can be or how imitative of itself, the fact that, you know, this movie's made a, a lot of money, but it has somewhat underperformed. It did OK, but didn't really match quite the figures they were hoping for. And I think there may be an indication of what I call franchise fatigue, the latest Indiana Jones, which is the final installment, all, all indicators are that, unless Tom Cruise takes it over. But, you know, here, the thing is that most recent indie film also, it made a lot of money, but of course it also cost a lot of money, right? So both those films, as we speak, have, have done okay, but not really quite as big as they were hoping for. And maybe I'm hoping for the fact that people will kind of take a lesson from that, namely that, you know, you do have a built-in fan base here, but uh, as you indicated earlier, how much of an audience beyond that? Unless you're like really tapped into this franchise of Mission Impossible, I don't see it like converting or winning over a lot of, of people beyond that. 
But for the segment of people who like to go see the indie movie or the Mission Impossible movie, it's it's a problem when they have to compete with each other. If it could have come out when they originally intended, you know, it might have made back some of the, what is this, $291 million that it took to make this movie, part of which was 500,000 pounds that Tom Cruise paid for an old cruise ship to isolate all the cast and crew because, you know, of COVID. So, I mean, he he really went all out to make sure this movie got made and finished. And he was probably thinking, wow, what people really need right now is an action movie. But when you're watching it, it takes, you know, 20 minutes of action before even you get the opening credits. You know, they just cannot wait to get in there and and start with the action, which is how you need to start this kind of movie. But we say this all the time, Mike, two hours and 43 minutes. That's just too long. It's just too long. Well, it's my observation about too much of a good thing. I mean, a film like this would be so much better if it were as much as an hour shorter. It Keep it shorter. I don't mean short, but shorter and, and punchy. And, and it really will be a thrill ride. But for me, I, there's an exhaustion factor. I start to get worn out by it there. But again, segment by segment really works well. And it's worth watching the whole thing just to get that train sequence at the very end. That really is bravura filmmaking. The other thing that kept me watching is even though Tom Cruise is very much the, the center of attention, there are some good supporting performances. We can talk about them, but what I'll immediately say is that uh, two actors, Bing Rains and Simon Pegg, they've been on the, this train before, if you will. They've been on this trip. And, and both Ving Rames and Simon Pegg, they are what I call really dependable supporting players for a film. Like the moment they're on screen, you know that they're going to deliver not just the line, but the, the physical performance. And they do it, even though a film like this tends to be like overstated by nature, they, they manage to somehow give what I call understated performances within it. And I think I'm looking for maybe just silver linings here where there's a little more depth to something that's shallow, but, but the fact that um, they really know how to, to deliver the goods. And for me, there's a kind of pleasure, kind of comfort food factor, just in having someone like that on screen. How do you feel about that? Because those actors tend not to get mentioned as often as I'm mentioning them. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if I point out that Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg are really good, people will say, oh, yeah, they're good. But if I just left it quiet, I don't think the names would come up. Yeah, I think you're right. And on both counts, I think it is nice to see supporting actors that you really like, especially in a franchise, because it feels like you know, fr- old friends. Um, I think that was, that's kind of the problem I had with Indiana Jones, that Antonio Banderas is in there somewhere, <laughs> you know, just completely buried, right? Yeah. So, yeah, but but actors like Ving Rang in particular, he really deserves more of a, a, a mention because he's, he's better than just like the straight man propping up Tom Cruise. But let me ask you, do you feel like at 61, I mean, this is supposed to be dead reckoning, Uh, part one. So there's going to be obviously part two. How long can Tom Cruise keep this up? Well, part two comes out next year, so we can talk about it again in a a year's time. He he may well be the next Harrison Ford in that respect, right? Harrison Ford's the other side of 80. And and so Tom Cruise can keep doing uh, Mission Impossible movies, I suppose, for another 20 years. (laughs) With AI and de-aging, right? Well, with all that, right. Although although Tom Cruise will insist on doing his own aging, you know, he, he, <laughs> <laughs> nothing computer generated. It's really time. But, you know, you earlier mentioned something I want to underscore further, namely when I talked about his skill here, there really is a discipline in him as an actor. And again, if you say who your favorite actors, he would not make my short list. But I have a lot of respect for that, that he really through COVID, through everything else, he is determined. He gets mm-hmm. it done. 
And all that plays on screen. So again, within that limited range, he's terrific. He knows what to do. And, and yes, to your point, he'll keep on doing it. You know, because these films, even if they're underperforming, they are still performing, right? They're, you know, he still has an audience there. So um, I don't see him. Why should he slow down? He has a few franchises that carry him. And, and uh, if they flag, he may well, you know, pick up a, a, a new franchise. I'd like to see something new, actually. Not, not, <laughs> not something I see very often. I'd like something brand new. Something like he's retired and now it's all about Mission Possible. I'm going to go to the store and buy a loaf of bread today with my walker. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll, he'll be on his walker, but he'll get there. <laughs> you know, but though it, it makes me think of Daniel Craig talking about giving up being James Bond. What it requires of you physically to stay in that kind of shape is just not reasonable once you pass a certain age. And I think it was a good idea for him to bow out before you just become a dimmer version of yourself that people well, are used to seeing. You're absolutely right about that. But there, there is a, a crucial distinction here, namely that Daniel Craig is a more versatile actor. And he felt that he was trapped within that role. He didn't because that, well, that's what happens in a big franchise. You are that character, right? And audiences may not want to see you in anything else or more crucially that the producers and casting directors might not even think of you, right? Because that's not an appropriate role. But Daniel Craig's proven over the years, both on stage and on screen, that he has versatility as an actor. So I think you're right. The first fold is that, you know, he's getting in, into middle age and boy, to do some of those stunts is tough. But then the second fold, of course, is just that he has other things he'd rather do. And I guess, uh, can we have three folds? I guess a third fold <laughs> A third fold would simply be that at this point, uh, you know, he works when he wants to work, but goodness sakes, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much money he has, but he's got a lot of money. So he it's not like he has to take a job. So he can probably be choosy at this point. So I also want to ask you about the, the title, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part One. You know, I had to actually look up Dead Reckoning to find out what it was. And it turns out, that it's a way of if your GPS is temporarily blocked because you're in a busy downtown area like New York City with really high skyscrapers and stuff that will block the signal, that using a compass and speedometers and other things, they can always know where you are regardless of when they lose your signal. Why use that particular imagery? Because if it's about being able to find you no matter what, how do you think that's going to play out in the sequel? Well, it was originally a nautical term. So in the age of sail, and in fact, if I can put in a plug for something totally unrelated, but uh, David Grin's uh, the, the Wager is an absolutely terrific book about, about an 18th century English shipwreck. And, and, and in that book, uh, Grand talks quite a bit about what happens when you know they get caught up in storms off of South America and they're sort of losing their way and how often they have to rely on essentially dead reckoning where, you know, you're on the deck of this 18th century British ship and, and whatever devices you brought with you are starting of going overboard or not working, whatever. Anyway, with that going into gruesome detail, because the book does a terrific job with that. There are times when they are so totally lost and like, where are we? How do we get out of here? You know, trying to go, get around Cape Horn, you know, things like that where they rely on what then was fairly standard dead reckoning, where when you know the stars, you know, looking up and, and reckoning that way. And of course, in, in our culture, we, we've sort of lost those nautical references because most of us are not on 18th century sailing ships anymore. But we still have a sense of that when all the talk about someone like, like say, like Harriet Tubman, let's say, with, with uh, Underground Railroad, you know, look for that North Star, that kind of thing, that, that whole sense of looking to the heavens 
to give you guidance. Now, with that by way of an academic side lecture, I've got to point out that I think it's a terrible title for the film because sh we shouldn't have to be having this discussion about what <laughs> Dead Reckoning is all about, right? I mean, I'm happy to have it because I love obscure and arcane and historical terms, but it just doesn't really speak to the nature of the film particularly. But again, this is a film that, that jumps all over the place. I mean, and that's one reason why there's that kind of eye candy appeal. It's, it's in Venice, it's in Rome, it's on the Orient Express, whether in Europe or in, in North Yorkshire, wherever it is, Abu Dhabi, you know, you, you, you mention it and, and there's like a spot on the globe. So there is a sense of reckoning that way as it hits all these spots around the world. But honestly, within the film itself, the, the term is is not really referenced or, or relevant particularly. We're sort of imposing that on it because it happens to be the title of the film. Why? Not? So uh, this is a long-winded way of saying that I can't answer your question. So like of all the titles I could have given it, why Dead Reckoning? It just mm -hmm. like if I were at that conference table, it wouldn't be in my top five choices at all. And, and then the thing is like, so it's sort of a puzzling title. And then when you have a title that doesn't quite make sense, really, and then you're told part one, mm -hmm. or maybe part two, we'll have him looking up at the stars. I don't know. <laughs> really, really Dead Reckoning. Yeah, exactly. You mean it this time. All right, let's move on to Joyride. All right, this is sort of a sleeper of a movie. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I saw it, I had heard some buzz online about how funny it was, what a great chick flick it was, how well-written it was. So based on those descriptions and the fact that it featured a Asian cast of people I was familiar with, I went with my sister. And there was only one other woman in the audience with us. And I am ashamed to tell you how much we laughed at this movie, which I can't say it, it hit on all cylinders, but when it worked, it was hilarious. Mike, what was your initial reaction to the movie? Well, in many ways, it's the sort of raunchy comedy that mm -hmm. is relentless. And, and some of it I thought was just, some of it was like stupid, funny, stupid, some of it just funny. stupid, stupid, stupid. And, and, and to me, it was uneven that way and, and really kind of grading at times. But there are scenes that are just extremely funny. By way of giving it a cultural reference or context, it is directed by Adele Lim, who was the co-writer of Crazy Rich Asians. And, and that, that is actually a, a good point of reference because, you know, that uh, of all the groups underrepresented on screen, if you will, for all these low, these many decades, uh, it was really so often like, you know, Asians or Asian Americans that were almost invisible in mainstream Hollywood films, or they'd have a supporting part. Like if you have an office setting, whether your leads are white or black or whatever, somewhere like the third or fourth banana, as they might say, right, that a supporting player might be an Asian guy or something who's there sort of for comic relief or just to be supportive, whatever. But you know what I'm getting at, that, that, that these were like really minor roles oftentimes. It was rare to have Asian actors in a lead role. So with certainly crazy rich Asians now, you're mentioning a film that really hasn't done that much at the box office. When I saw it, just a handful of people there as well. But crazy rich Asians did make a lot of money and got great reviews, got a lot of notice. That is something really terrific to think about because producers take note and movies like Joyride get made and everyone out of the gate might not be the best film, but that things have changed that way because really all of the principal actors here are, are um, Asians. And because uh, it really is about a group of gal pals. It's a, this group of women. They are what we call mismatched friends. And we can talk about individual characters. And there are performers who are getting more work and will get more in the future. The one plug I really want to put in is for the actress Sherry Cola in this film. I mean, she's really funny here. And then within weeks of seeing her in Joyride, I saw her in a film that came out a little bit after that, Shortcomings. 
In both those films, she is really, really funny. She's got this deadpan delivery. And so sometimes like, you know, if somebody says something and you know that's like a setup for her like to have this, this you know, whip smart comeback, she'll pause a second or two and she'll stare at the other person. And then she'll give this devastating remark. And she seems heartless at times. But of course, in a film like this, it ultimately does have a heart. But but she's an example of someone where like if you had asked me like a year or two ago, who is this? You know, I, I'd have to look it up or I wouldn't be sure. Like, oh, I think, you know, that kind of namby pandy. I think this or that. Now, having seen her like in these movies, if you mention that name to me, I automatically have these film titles thinking, even though I had mixed feelings about the films, it's a gifted talent pool that's finally getting that kind of recognition. And I think based on a movie like certainly uh, this one and Shortcomings, she's going to get a lot of work. So, so, and what I'll hope for, well, actually what I'm really looking for, I mean, a movie like this, it's great to have this almost all Asian cast. That's terrific. But when these actors then build on that, why not have them pop up in some mainstream blockbuster? And they will, for sure. Now, it, being in a superhero movie can be a mixed blessing, but but you get job offers, right? And, and so, you know, let her be at the helm of the starship, whatever, for, for one of these movies. And I, and I think, well, good for her, you know? So I actually enjoyed the movie at that level. So overall, I had mixed feelings about it. And one reason I had mixed feelings, Maria, is the movie so often is kind of um, not exactly cruel, but it's cruel the way friends are with each other, the put downs, the this, the that. But in the movie, and if you want to talk more about the plot, but essentially we're like looking for for an absent parent, looking for, looking because for, one of the characters was adopted, going to China, looking for that parent and so on. The, the movie ultimately is going to tug at the heartstrings. And where I found it disappointing was the fact that I understand that impulse, but so much of the footage early on in the film, it's just so silly and, and just so, you know, let, let's make fun of this and that. Then when it goes for the heartstrings, to me, it felt like it was tugging on the strings that way. It seemed kind of manipulative and kind of drawn out. It seemed like, and, and so even though I, I, I will say I was moved by it, I was also a bit bothered by it that it, like, okay, now we've done all this raunchy stuff, but now we're going to show we're really good, good gals, right? You know, and, and to me, that just seemed a little forced by the end. What do you think? See, it worked on me on the complete opposite level that I spent so much time laughing at various parts of the movie that when it actually got serious and then it made you cry, I thought, wow, what a joy ride. And by the way, I want to mention, because we just talked about the title for Mission Impossible, perfect title for this movie, because the slug line is joyride, four friends, one trip, no luck. So it's obviously a callback to the Joy Luck Club of 1993. Also, in terms of like seeing old friends on screen, Ashley Park has a, a part in um, Emily in Paris. If you've watched Emily in Paris, you already know who she is. Stephanie Sue, we've seen in Everything Everywhere All at Once. So it's kind of like a Asian sex in the city. I agree with you completely. It is raunchy, but I will say they commit to the bit, which is why it works. I mean, they they don't pull any punches. They really kind of go for it. And they do explore that idea of friendship between, you know, in some ways people you choose, in some way people you're thrown together with. That works really well. So in terms of a chick flick, I think that that way of setting it up where you, you show the outrageous, you show how cruel people really are to their family members, to their friends, in a way that's actually meant to seem very brutally honest. And then you, you know, get him with the one-two punch with the emotional uh, scene. I thought it was a great movie in that respect. I thought the timing was good. When they placed that bit was was great. Oh, and by the way, you get the guy from Lost, you know, in there too. 
in terms of, of characters that you recognize. So I don't know. I just thought it, it just had so many high points at that one point where they, where they obviously are going for the um, emotional beat. I thought it worked. Yeah, I, I did not cry at the end. I, I don't mind confessing, <laughs> but 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 emotionally, I, I mean, all joking aside, I mean, I acknowledge that it was really you know tugging at us that way. And to its credit, it, all through the film, it raises questions about identity and assimilation, if you will, and you know, in, in a very jokey way at first. And so thematically, it is warranted that it would take a more serious turn because this is a, the the, the character the character I was mentioning earlier as someone who is very much. You know, Asian American underscore the American there, somebody who was, you know, adopted, brought up, you know, in North America and so on. And, you know, returning uh, to home or what would have been home before she was put up for adoption. That's a that's a viable premise. And and when you go on a trip like that, it is a it is a ride and ultimately joyous. Uh, it's interesting when you mentioned Joy Luck Club before. It underscores something actually I was saying earlier, namely that, you know, that was a kind of breakthrough movie, but for whatever reason, not much followed from it. Right. Going back to the early 90s. And I, I saw that film, you know, when, when it first came out and, and you know met some of the cast and, and crew and all. And so I thought this is a breakthrough. And I was wrong in the sense that, you know, the film got critical recognition and did well commercially. But for whatever reason, it's almost like you have to wait another 10 or 20 years or something. And so you've got to be cautious sometimes where, where things seem like they're a breakthrough. And that, but somehow then it seems sort of isolated because we couldn't mention many examples between then and now, could we? So it, it for whatever reason, sort of went back on the shelf there. But I think now, you know, this whole notion uh, that we talk about so often in terms of, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion and so on, that is something that is actually operating in Hollywood as much as anywhere. And, and I've seen so many movies lately where you really get a sense of people of diverse backgrounds all in the film. And initially, it might sometimes seem when I say force, I just simply mean like somebody sitting at a table on a programmatic saying, OK, we have one of this, we need one of that, that kind of thing, which is almost Machiavellian at times. But what I find encouraging is I'm, I'm seeing movies recently where it seems more organic. And that's the ideal, isn't it? It's just like, well, who's good for this role? Mm -hmm. And it might be somebody of you know one gender or another or, or one ethnic background or another, whatever. But when you watch the film, you just feel like, yeah, this is like a good United Nations of casting. And it just came together that way. And that's what I'd like to see where it doesn't have to be programmatic. It's just, well, we have a new, we have this character who's good for the role. So, Mike, I want to ask you, is there anything you want to say to people listening to us talking about this movie to flag anything that people may find offensive? Well, there's a lot that is deliberately offensive in this film, and that's where you have to sort of do a, a check on yourself. Like if, if you're really offended by certain material, don't watch it, <laughs> you know, watch something else. So this is a case where if you want to go along on the joyride, you realize that there's sort of potty mouth all the way through and there's some stuff that's meant to be offensive. And um, if you're, you and I were laughing a lot of that, but if you're not laughing, uh, you're not the the target audience that way. So just simply watch something else. Yeah, the um, I mean, it is very raunchy. It's 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 like sex in the city, but but more so. And but but it does have a lot of great things, I thought, to say about friendship, the the kinds of the jealousies that come up when you try to blend friend groups. The the friend that you had in college isn't necessarily going to get along with your friend you've had your whole life and if they're both thinking that they're your best friend and you know the main person you're traveling with this is actually it's played for laughs in the movie but this is something that is really something that happens in people's lives and i thought that that was actually kind of well done the other some of the other plot devices i mean the k-pop thing was hilarious but it's very contrived but it's meant to be contrived you're not supposed to feel like it's 
anything other than a series of skits, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I like the, your use of the word contrived because there's a lot of contrivance here. There, there's some skits that they, they obviously realize how silly something is or just how tossed in it is. And they have a, they have an awareness, a self-awareness in that respect. And, and I think that's to the credit of the film that it, it knows just how dumb it's going in places or how shameless in places, right? Shameless. What do, shameless, what it'll do for a laugh. And again, I was willing to go along with that. And so that helped me stay with the film. And I know you liked it more than I did, but when I say hit or miss, it, it does hit on occasion. I think there's some very funny stuff there. Now, what do you think this uh, bodes for a sequel? Because the I think the chemistry between the four women who are, are the main leads uh, was very, very, very well done. I didn't feel like anybody was anybody's story was neglected. And there were even some surprises within the stories you saw unfolding, things you didn't, I did not anticipate in spite of a lot of these situations being contrived. So is this like Joyride, Dead Reckoning, Part One? So, <laughs> so in the sequel, no, no, we'll be, a, no, no, we'll be on a train be... in North, we'll be on a train in North Yorkshire. But Marie, seriously, to your point, uh, I don't usually ask for sequels. I don't usually welcome them. But this is a case where you have several uh, gal pals. You have these best friends. You know what? If you had a sequel, there are other lives, other aspects of their lives that could be explored. You're absolutely right. Uh, so this is a film that actually, not that, again, I'm asking for it, but I think it actually could support a, a sequel. Uh, although the first one didn't do all that well, but but still, you could, you could get a sequel here. Yeah, I think the title would be Joyride, Dead Eyes uh, Story. Oh, all right. <laughs> I look forward to talking about it if and when. <laughs> Uh, so actually that does bring us to the end of this episode but don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atnhcc.podbean.com and we'll see you next time at the movies see you then connect with us we are dragon digital media podcast